I always thought that I was much better in science and maths. You know, I, I actually love maths. I know what a bank branch looks like. I know what people in the bank branch um, definitely do. Really wanted to understand more about early stage equity investing. Building a business is really tough and that's where founders need to focus on from day one. That's where we will come in. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Dondi Hananto. He's a partner at Padamar Capital, based in Indonesia. Before Padamar, he made early-stage investments through Kinara Indonesia, and before that, spent 13 years in commercial banking. He started his career at HSBC and two other Indonesian banks, where he served in many roles, including business development, credit, and risk management. Hi, Dondi. Nice to see you again after all this time. It's exciting to catch up, but this time to dive into your life story. Thank you very much. It's been a while and good to be here. So I'm going to dive in right to the questions that we have today. So the first question we ask everyone is, what was your childhood like? What was my childhood like? Well, okay. I'm a firstborn of the two children. So I only have one little brother, uh, which is pretty typical for Indonesian families in the 70s and 80s, because that was the time when the government started to really advocate family planning, meaning don't have too many children, two children were enough. Those were the stories. And my parents were definitely part of that. So I, I was born in the late 70s. I grew up in the 80s. Um, so I think it was very interesting that I felt that my generation were the first generation in this part of the world to start to embrace technology. Right? So I was crazy about video games since I was young. My family couldn't afford consoles. I remember my primary school years ended up playing at my friend's house a lot because they have the latest um, Nintendo or you know, other other consoles at that point. So that was that was really where my I think early fascination with technology was. But I think growing up it was also a pretty balanced time because of course yes there were some technology but obviously it's very different from what it is now there's no internet so it was spent a lot of time also playing outdoors and being involved in sports actually pretty went for a pretty intense swimming club until i was about 13 and then i got bored and started playing basketball found out i wasn't too good at it but i really loved the game so that was really my childhood just a mix of um, you know the fun part is really a mix of outdoors sports and video games did you grow up in indonesia or did you uh, move around for at least your early childhood 
I was born and raised in Indonesia. I only started moving abroad for high school, where I spent a couple of years in Singapore and then um, went to university in Australia. So you've been into sports for a while. Are you still into swimming and basketball until now? I think it's basketball now, right? Yes, yes, it's it's basketball. So I managed to find a group of people in mostly in their 30s. I'm one of the oldest in the group since I'm in my mid-40s now. But it's good to find that group who are at the same skill and fitness level. So, you know, the game is not as intense. The main goal of our weekly game really is to come home without any injuries. I think that's <laughs> really the, the point. And at least you can say you have the fitness level of a 30-year-old instead of a 40-year-old if you're playing with them. <laughs> I hope so. I you hope can so. Keep up. I think I can I can yeah, I can I can still keep up and you know do one fast break and then stop at the end. <laughs> what kind of person were you at school? Were you one of the very academic people? Were you somewhere in the middle? Did you not care Ooh, for it? This is very interesting. I I was really a geek growing up. Was, there's definitely a somehow a pressure that I put on myself to do well academically. And that's what I did in primary school. But middle school was when I found social life. So <laughs> I think um, middle school was the part where I started slacking off a little bit academically you know, not not too bad. Um, still doing pretty well, but definitely, you know, wasn't aiming for you know being the top student in my grade anymore. That was uh, that was a bit of a change then. And then, so you went to study in Singapore for the last few years of high school. What was that like? And what made you study overseas? Is it your parents? You? Oh yeah, that was uh, answering the why first. It was really it wasn't something that I think my parents even planned or or I dreamed of. Uh, didn't think that it was possible for my parents to be able to put me through school abroad. It was mainly because. I managed to snag a scholarship. So many thanks to the Singapore government for having this scholarship for ASEAN students. My batch was only the second batch from Indonesia that received this uh, the scholarship. So yeah, got to uh, it was and it was it was really by chance. It was my mom seeing the ad on a newspaper. You know, remember those things, hard copy newspapers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she said, hey, there's this chance for uh, you to actually go to Singapore for high school. Do you want to try? I was like, yeah, why not? So the competitive side of me kind of say, uh, hey, I, I I should give it a try. Yeah, at least and, try it, right? Uh, at least. <laughs> yeah, at least, at least try it. You'll never know, right? So I went through the tests and, you know, apparently was accepted. So yeah, that was, that was something that was a life changer, definitely. What the experience was like, it was really intense. I went to a public high school in Indonesia, and even though it was supposedly one of the best in Jakarta, the discipline was very different. Uh, to to put it nicely, I I could still skip class and and um, you know play basketball or whatever, but in the Singaporean school was very different. The system was really intense and competitive. 
And um, the worst part for me was that realizing that my English was not up to standard. That was my fir- the first time in my life that I got Fs for both English language and English literature. And stupidly, oh, wow. I don't know what I was thinking that I took English literature. Yeah, even I didn't take English literature in school. <laughs> Yep. I mean, that was that was definitely a shocker, right? I think the first term uh, receiving receiving two Fs was really a shocker. And then, and this is, uh, you know, I, I really love her for it. My English teacher uh, was someone who was very legendary. She, well, she was very, very disciplined. There were two other Indonesians that were in the same school with me. And we were both, uh, we were all struggling in english so she put us through extra lessons and everything oh, after and school she would I, teach you more after school a couple of hours and you know i was i started joining the rugby team because my school didn't have a basketball team and i thought oh, okay rugby you know you use your head i'm so surprised similar. that they have rugby but not basketball yeah it was well, rugby was pretty was uh, it in back uh, then pretty, it was for Singapore, I oh, think, because okay. of the um, English links and everything. It was a pretty prestigious sport to be in. So some some high schools do play rugby, and it was uh, it was pretty competitive. Well, you didn't get the English, but you got the rugby. So at least you. I know. You I know. Excelled no. in something no, but, else. <laughs> but I think what, what I'm what I can be really proud of is to say that yeah, my first term I got an F, but I ended up acing both English and literature. Oh wow! End. And Congratulations. I ended up really loving, really loving literature because really? of that teacher. So I owe her my life. I, I really love um, reading and literature, and I think it helps me a lot in life later as well. I think it says a lot to be failing something, but ending up loving it after that. It's a quite a powerful experience, I could say. <laughs> yep, yep. And English literature, I think it's up there in my mind with the difficult things that are kind of like math to me. <laughs> it kind of shaped my way of thinking about education because I think the Indonesian education at that point in the 90s was very much geared towards you know the high school to the students are boxed into either science or social science oh, and okay. science was always seen as more prestigious and oh, okay. right? so everyone most students were aiming to get into the science track and i always thought because of that mindset and i always thought that i was much better in science and maths. You know, I, I actually love maths. So see, I'm a geek. Right? <laughs> so I, I really love maths. I really love physics. And those were the subjects that I was good at. I did realize how social sciences really helped me to shape my way of thinking. And I think those subjects like history and English literature really shaped the way I think what people should learn about. And that's why, you know, currently I'm really fascinated with the U.S. style uh, liberal arts where you combine science and and humanities subjects. And I think that's, that's what you need in life, right? You can't be one track. I think that's something I noticed as well in my last two years of school. I changed schools as well, something a bit more international. Then they made us pick mm-hmm. 
two languages. So you're like English and then a foreign language. And then I picked a language and literature, not literature. I picked a mm-hmm. math. I picked the hardest math because I used to like math until I was failing that class. <laughs> I failed it. But the teacher, I like the teacher as well. Similar to you, I think he made the class very fun and very good. But unlike you, even after my extra homework, I couldn't make it. So I downgraded to the less <laughs> difficult math. But uh, I, okay. I did two humanities along with one math and one science subject. And I think I can agree that you need all of it together. Yes. 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 So what other language did you learn? Oh, I learned Chinese. So I've been studying Chinese since I was <laughs> a kid. Because we have those Chinese schools here. Yes. I wanted to continue it. Uh, probably my favorite yeah. class was Chinese. That was really my biggest uh, regret of not learning Mandarin when I was in Singapore. And um, yeah, I, I really felt that I, I should have at least, you know, started that a little bit. But then, you know, that's that. Speaking of moving there, were you in a dorm or were you living somewhere else, like with relatives? Yes, we were we were in a dorm, uh, you know, so I had that, you know, when Harry Potter came out and reading about that, I was kind of kind of living back my my childhood. So, oh, yeah, that was that was exactly what what we did. You have different dorms with different factions, I guess. Yep. Yep. What was it like to move there and live in a dorm with so many different people, probably from different countries? Was it a very yeah, my- like open experience? Like. You felt felt like your eyes are opened. Was it a very positive experience? Scary experience? <laughs> it was uh, well. For one one aspect is that I was glad to be able to find freedom from my parents. I think all 16, 17 year olds feel that, right? And I I moved out when I was. 16. So it was great to be away from your parents. <laughs> so definitely that was that was the freedom that we were looking for at that point. And living in a dorm, I think it really opens up my horizon of, you know, so you um, get to meet a lot of people from different countries, even though at that point in my dorm, there were mostly Malaysians, Indonesians, and people from Hong Kong. So there weren't that many nationalities. Other, yeah. I remember there were, but yeah, mostly uh, mostly those three. I had a, a Malaysian roommate that, um, you know, we really bonded really well and, you know, understand and seeing the, yeah, just seeing different different backgrounds. I think it, it, it really opens up my horizon uh besides of course sharing the struggles of um living in a different country and and all that and then you went to university in australia and i think my next question for you was i mean my next question for you is uh, are you in the faction of people who think like your lifelong friends are your friends from high school the lifelong friends you have are the ones from college or are you in some other school of thought Hmm. Um, I would say different phases in life you you get to you get to spend with different types of friends. So unfortunately for me is that most of my high school friends are not from Indonesia and they're not in Indonesia, right? So it was very hard to even reconnect to each other until facebook came along right so <laughs> i forgot there was um, no facebook we, back then 
You probably yes, don't even know their yeah. Facebook names, so you would only see them by chance. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, they were uh, there was Friendster and MySpace before that, <laughs> <laughs> but there weren't there weren't any there weren't any use. But you know, we we keep connected now. Um, they're everywhere around the world, and I think the the fun part of that is that even though you don't see them um, very often, or you know you probably even only meet them a couple of times um, after graduation and being separated. It was it was great to have someone in uh, different places. You know, so I just visited the UK a couple of months ago and uh, reconnected with some friends who are, you know, one was living in Manchester, one was living in, in London. And um, it was uh, basically nice to see them after about 10 years because I think for one of them the last time I saw him was his wedding in Malaysia 10 years ago so it was good to catch up and see you know I last saw him at his wedding and now he has two kids which yeah. is amazing to see the difference and um, yeah and, and what, what I was saying as well is that I think then I realized that for different phases of life I get to have uh, different friends and some people stay in touch for uh and and stay close like for forever um mm-hmm. i i don't really have that you know i think it's that's just uh, that's just something that that you know you're that was a very good question from you and i really reflect that and say yeah I, I don't really have that you know one group of friends that i hang out with since 20 30 years ago yeah. so talking about university in australia what was it like did you want to study overseas after graduated from high school or was this another opportunity that came up? Yep. It was another opportunity. So what was interesting was that after finishing high school, which for the Singaporeans, technically it was middle school because it was all levels, um, mm-hmm. the Cambridge style. So I had the choice back then of doing the A level in Singapore, which was another two years, or Mm -hmm. going to Australia and only do one last year of high school, year 12 in Australia. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to obtain, again, scholarships and financial support for both. Then I thought, okay, why not save another year and go to Australia? And to be fair, I didn't really fit into the Singapore very strict, disciplined, competitive uh, school system. So I was totally stressed out. Didn't do too badly. I think my my grades were were still okay, but yeah, I, I that was just not for me. So you're happy to get out, um, right? And then only one year of high again. school, finish college faster. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yep, that's right. That's right. So that that I think is the big difference between me and my brother. Uh, my brother is definitely smarter than me. He also went to the same path of obtaining a scholarship and go to Singapore. He actually stayed there until he graduated university and um, worked in Singapore, got married, had his first child in Singapore and only went back after his uh, first child was born. Now he's back here in Jakarta. So that's the main difference. He really enjoyed the Singapore lifestyle and 
Sorry for the Singaporeans listening. I didn't. <laughs> Maybe some of them in the back of their minds are like, at least you had a way out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was the Indonesian in me where apparently I enjoyed the randomness and the mess of Indonesia, right? I felt that Singapore was very structured. And yeah. obviously things are very predictable, which is very good for business, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the reason why most funds like us um, set it up in Singapore and yada, yada. But yeah, I just couldn't it's picture myself. It's on the myself, personal side, um, right? It's always a choice, right? For some yeah. people, they'll love that yeah. kind of lifestyle where it's very city-like, very structured. Other people will love like what Australia looks like, which I remember is like a very fun, chill place. I saw people drinking beer at four in the afternoon. And I was like, hmm, very different yeah, place yeah, from yeah. even the Everyone's Philippines. Just... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. And then like after you graduated from university, did you go straight to Indonesia? Because I think based on your LinkedIn, it looks like you did. What made you go back? I did. Yeah, it wasn't really by choice. Um, so I graduated right at the height of the Asian financial crisis back in 98, uh, graduated at the end of 98. And you know, things were very different since 97. The Asian crisis definitely hit hard. Asian currencies were um, really depreciating really badly. And um, you know, at that point, it was very difficult for foreigners to obtain working visa uh, in Australia. So I actually tried after graduate, well, prior to graduation and after graduation to find a job in Australia. Uh, found a very good opportunity with a multinational company there, but they just had difficulties to sponsor my working visa at that point. So. My student visa ran out. I had no choice but to come back here to Jakarta and leaving the post-crisis Indonesia, which was, you know, everything was doom and gloom at that point. And then that was when you joined HSBC. Was that your first job out of graduation? Yep. Yep. So, um, yes. And that was that was another funny story how you never know where life takes you, right? So I actually did IT in university. Again, the geek side in me, although I was regretting it a little bit in the final year, realizing that you know I was more cut to be a user and I, you know, enjoying playing video games doesn't mean that you should be um, building those things <laughs> yes yes so you know i and you know i, I it, it was it was really funny because um in high school i really enjoyed you know coding and, and programming oh, even ended from up high getting school. really yes it. yes oh, okay yeah yeah but ended up really getting sick of it at the final okay just get it over and done with but the the a good thing was that the course that I did was really great in the sense that um, we all have to do a double major where one major has to come from the computer science faculty. Uh, but one major, you can do anything from the university. And I was starting to get fascinated with the business business world. So I did 
uh, my second major is actually marketing from the business school. So that was fun. Although I have to say I had a friend whose uh, second major was philosophy. So, you know, that that was that was the most random that I saw. So he did IT and philosophy. Pretty cool guy. I, I don't know where he ends up, though. Uh, pretty cool guy. So, <laughs> you know, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have to I have to find him on LinkedIn. That that um, that's uh, a good reminder. But anyway, um, yeah, graduated as an IT graduate. There wasn't that many IT jobs in Indonesia at the time. So I, and, you know, Asian crisis, it was just very, very difficult to find, um, to any find job, opportunity, period. any job. I was sending my CVs and, um, you know, this was um, the time when we were still sending physical job applications. Yes. So did that to all the big companies that I knew had some traction in two different uh, multinational companies. Uh, One was actually a a very large FMCG producer and the other one was HSBC in banking. And I took HSBC because they were the first one that made me an offer. And a week later, the offer from the other company came and I was like, oops, I've, I've already signed with the other. So, you know, went into finance totally by chance. I didn't enjoy accounting. I only took basic finance, but, you know, ended up in, ended up in banking. And, and I think that's another form of life where it took me to where I am now. Were you excited about the job when you got it? Well, I was excited about ending unemployment uh, (laughs) but the job itself like the job itself apart from the not being unemployed anymore part yeah that was that was definitely you know uh ending eight months of unemployment was definitely exciting uh the job itself i didn't know what to expect really Mm -hmm. i didn't know what banking was all about except for you know the things that you saw as a student, right? So I know what a bank branch looks like. I know what people in the bank branch um, definitely do in the front line. So you, you've seen the customer service people, you've seen the tellers, but you'll never, you never knew what happened behind the scenes, right? Yeah. Uh, so I went in without any expectation and without any understanding where I would fit in. So I joined the management trainee program where, you know, they gave us a couple of months to really test us where we would fit in. So, you know, explore, they took us to explore different, different departments, different roles, and then assign us um, our early role. So, Really didn't know what to expect um, when when I went in, and um, you know having to learn a lot of things in my first year. And what made you stay for almost eight years? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that was a good question. I I felt that you know it was. I felt that there were there were a lot of growth opportunities. Uh, for me at that time. HSBC at that point in Indonesia was not a well-known brand. And in fact, uh, when I, I 
joined um, the brand watch and it wasn't HSBC yet. So it was called Hong Kong Bank. Uh, so my first, and unfortunately I didn't keep any of it. My first business card says Hong Kong Bank. Um, oh. That would have been, uh, yeah, that would have been good in a, in a museum someday. Mm. And so um, you know, went through all the rebranding and all that. Uh, and uh, retail business was pretty new, but growing really fast and I felt that there was a there was a lot of learning opportunities there and um, you know got to got to find some good mentors at work where you know they I think were able to see my potential and gave me um, pretty challenging uh, tasks and projects and really enjoyed doing them and um you know so i think the 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 learning opportunities and the growth opportunities really kept me there for quite some time yeah eight years and it's interesting because you ended up in like credit risk and those kinds of fields and then i think after that you got into sort of similar things like risk and microfinance so why did you get into those things after leaving hsbc one thing about about banking is that I mean the the core of banking is lending, right? So banks make money from lending. So I felt that um, that was really a core function uh, that I was able to learn and experiment. Uh, because I got the chance to be a part of new product development and product launches. Uh, you know, it felt like, you know, kind of a startup within within a corporate, right? So we were tasked with designing a new product and launching it. Uh, the way we worked definitely was not startup-like at all. It was very corporate, but it felt fun and um, I really enjoyed it. Credit was something that I also didn't expect that I would actually enjoy, but um, yeah, I think the you know the the realization that you know that is the core of banking, and I got to I got to see that side was was really interesting, and that again that really helped me with the uh, my present career. You know, when investing in lending companies, you know, I get to um, really geek out and talk to the founders and understanding, you know, how do you think about your risk management strategies? How do you think of, you know, your collection strategies? You know, all those things, which are really key because um, I think the those are the pitfalls that, you know, some lending startups have got into in the past few years. So, um, you know, that was, that was helpful. But I think also um, being in different parts of a credit business. So, yes, being in the core credit and risk management, but also, uh, you know, later in my career, managing sales and business development was kind of like the flip side of it. And, um, you know, both um, having uh, that overall view of uh, the whole business definitely helps helps me shape the way I think about building businesses. And after like 10, 11 years of traditional finance, what made you leave the industry and then go into like a lot of different things? I saw that. I thought these are different times. So these are like, I don't know, a year or months apart. You started like three different things for impact yep. investing. 
and yeah. like accelerator, yeah. then like a crowdfunding platform and uh, the first co-working space in Indonesia. So those three things all at the same time. What made you do those? It's a lot. Yeah, I think- it's a lot to leave the industry and a lot to start three things. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, leaving the industry was definitely not uh, not an easy decision, right? But at that point, you know, so this was starting back in 2010. I clearly remember this. That was the start when I started seriously thinking about this. That was the point where I was fascinated about about equity investment, which was something that's an alien concept in Southeast Asia at that point, because yeah, banks and lending businesses have been able to grow and you have some massive, massive businesses in Southeast Asia um, that are in mainly banking in, in financial services. Uh, you know, but early stage equity investment, whether that's done by um, you know personal angel investors or funds, uh, venture capital funds was just n- nowhere, right? There was there was basically nothing, and at that point, you know, started reading and learning and meeting people from different countries that are in this space, you know. Uh, so really wanted to understand more about early stage equity investing. And that was just something that was definitely not possible to be done within uh, within a bank, right? Banks, banks don't do equity investment. And so what banks now have done is they set up corporate venture capital who then run it for them. But it's a it's a very different business from lending. So that was my itch. I wanted to understand more, wanted to learn about that, knowing that I couldn't do it within um, the organization that I was in and made the ask to my wife saying that, hey, what if I start doing this on my own and um, you know, leave all the cushy job behind and uh, you know, all the nice benefits uh, being a banker? And then actually, I told my wife that, um, you know, I give me two years to not earn anything and really live off her income. So we did that. Thankfully, you know, my wife saw that, okay, you, um, this is something that I really wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got frustrated with, um, you know, some of the, uh, challenges of corporate life and corporate politics. So um, that's something that I think we can we can touch on later. But that's something you know, the realities of working a corporate job. And um, yeah, so I really wanted to try that. So yeah, the main thing that I so I ended up leaving my banking career back in uh, 2011. Started getting into uh, early stage investing. Um, gathered. Uh, some um, friends to start uh, an accelerator and you know really learning about what it takes to build an early stage company from scratch and you know the the uh, VC structure and you know all these things that are very common now that was really the main thing but 
also the the fascination about different things that ended up you know leading to you know building a uh, the first co-working space in Jakarta was just really came up from the question of you know we only had a small team and we couldn't afford office uh, space for all of office. you yep mm. yep so why not set this up and that was our excuse to have an office as well and oh. you know meet uh, really cool people and entrepreneurs so that's that's what we did um and then the the crowdfunding uh part was also interesting it was i was really most i, I wouldn't take um, you know a lot of credit for that i was really behind the scenes one of my co-founders was really um you know the one behind that she came from the creative industry so she uh, was and still is a um, movie director and producer and you know we we got talking and she was like hey i'm seeing this very interesting ideas around crowdfunding for creative projects why don't we do something around that so i was like yeah okay why not i'll help you and and you know be the uh, be the cfo for that business so she was the one that was mainly running it yeah, so these were, I think, um, you know, once I left my corporate job, it gave me the freedom to pursue all these different interests. Of course, not everything turned out well, but you know, I think that was also learning about um, building and operating businesses. I think it was also cool that you had a two-year, I don't know, deadline for earning money. I won't earn money for two years, and then you set the expectations, and I guess the as he took the responsibility for it. Like you would own up to it if you didn't do it by two years. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise, you know, it will it will be hard. And at at that point, uh, you know, I already had three kids, so we definitely have to think about you know how how would I feed them and and you know continue their education. That was the bet that I had to take, and you know, my fallback plan was that you know if if after two years nothing works out, I'll I'll, I'll just suck it up and go back Time to, to go back to world. banking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully so, someone would would employ me. Yes. You know? but, With uh, uh, <laughs> 10 years of experience, I think at least one person would take the chance on you again. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. No, what? but yeah, the good thing was that yeah, at least all those experimentation helped me to think of um, you know, really what 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 it is that I really enjoy and what I really wanted to do. And I wouldn't be able to think very clearly about what I really wanted to do and where, what I really wanted to focus um, if I didn't have that chance to experiment with um, all the different things back then. Right, because you're able to work in corporate and finance and then you got to work at other kinds of companies apart from your first one. Then you were, I guess you could say a founder for the first and then the next one you're more of like a executive slash operator and then the last one is investing and then you stuck with it now you've been at yep. adamar for a long time i think was it seven years no nine 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 years yep that's right i joined in 2014 so it's been nine years yeah oh nine years as of this month i can see it now october congratulations yep. yeah. <laughs> what got you into the role again right if if i didn't uh if i didn't pursue the path of experimentation i wouldn't be able to even meet my business partners now 
right? So it was uh, it was a very interesting time when you know I I started dabbling into um, early stage investments in 2011. I actually met my business partners back in 2012. Um, so you know because I was basically just looking to network around the world with people with the same interests um, of you know, investing in early stage and investing in impact. And um, just so happened that my uh, business partners have been doing that in other markets. And when we met, um, Patamar was at the stage of um, raising the first fund to invest in Asia. So back then, it the focus was um, Southeast Asia and India. So... That was the point. So it was really, you know, uh, again, uh, a really good serendipity. I wanted to learn from people who have been in this space and and have really done it before. Patamar needed local people to uh, join the team and, um, you know, be be the partners running the investment on the ground. So. You know, that was that was the match and um yeah I ended up formally formally joining back in 2014 when we launched our first fund I remember you and An spoke about this when you met last time and it's that you guys do impact investing and some people think that you just invest in anything with a quote-unquote so-called impact but you guys actually quantify it more look into it much more and it's not it goes beyond just fluffy word that the fluffy word that is impact that some people like to throw around right <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think what what sets us uh differently is um you know we we want to also instill the discipline the discipline of measuring impact because it's you tend to fall into the narratives and the qualitative part of describing you know what uh, what the what the impact that your business makes, and you know th- those can be, you know, very nice, uh, fluffy stories and feel good stories. But um, quantifying it is definitely something that's not easy, and that's um, the the discipline that we also want to want to put in. Yeah. So all the the companies that we invest in need to be able to demonstrate and measure uh, their impact. And you know they don't have to be able to do that from day one because sometimes you know building a company is hard enough on its own, right? So um, you know we we fully understand we're you know also business people. Um, we know that the realities of building a business is really tough and that's where founders need to focus on from day one. That's where we will come in and you know if we if we start identifying that oh the this business can um, actually make impact, we actually help our portfolio companies to um, start thinking about, what are the impact metrics that they can measure? So that's that's what really what what we do in a nutshell. And what's the hardest part about your job as a VC? Uh, the the toughest toughest part um, has always been to to prove and to demonstrate that you can actually make good returns as as a vc right 
it's something with a very long feedback loop because fun the um, fun lives are usually 10 years right so you never really know whether you've done well or not until you actually gone through the full fun cycle uh, a 10 year uh, a 10 year cycle of the fun right that's when you can really start to prove uh, especially to your investors that, that you know the that money that you start to manage 10 years ago, how much you have managed to grow that and show the show the returns, right? That's a very long feedback loop. So my joke uh, has always been that, you know, this is, this is a career where, um, you know, you, you may only find out that you're mediocre um, and it's too late. You know, because after 10, 12 years of of uh, being in VC, then maybe you then realize, oh, uh, I'm not really good at it. And, um, you know, by then, you know, you lost 10, 12 years of, of your career. So that's that's really been the, the toughest part. And, you know, I, uh, also understanding, you know, from the asset owner side, from the investors or the limited partners, they have to take a leap of faith in trusting people like us, fund managers, with their with their money, and um, you know only see the results um, after after a long time, right? So it's um, that's where I feel is the toughest part, and um, you know that's really our our main responsibility to to investors. Uh, the um, the other side really is the the fun part of it really is meeting the amazing entrepreneurs on a daily basis and seeing new ideas, learning a lot from these entrepreneurs. That's really the fun part. But um, yeah, uh, being able to balance all that with um, the actual uh, fiduciary duty to investors is is uh, really the 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 tough part of of the job. So nine years in, we have one more year to find out if you're mediocre or great. <laughs> this yep, time next yep, year, exactly. we will know. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, actually, I just came back from the US, meeting with some of our investors in our first fund, and really discussing about you know what. The fun is looking like right now, and how it would look like uh, one year from now when you know it's the end of the fun life. So that's uh, you know that's the realities, and um, I think we're 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 tracking we're tracking well there. And speaking of difficulties, as I said earlier, you're going to be the first one with this new section that we're adding onto the podcast. And on this section, we are calling it founder problems, and any startup founder can submit any personal challenges they're having on you know, the work side, like with their business or on the personal side. And I'm going to share with you one question where we'd love to hear your thoughts or feedback, or if you have a solution, uh, that would be great. And so mm-hmm. this question is coming from an early stage VC funded startup founder. Mm-hmm. And this person said that at their startup, managers don't really trust each other and they're creating their own sort of territorial fiefdoms instead of really collaborating mm. with each other to solve you know the problems at the company so what do you think of this question wow yeah i think it was it was interesting because you know i i did 
talk about you know corporate politics and you know hey um, i'm just gonna say to this founder that is the realities of the business world right? um, businesses are, are organizations that are run by humans and humans are not always very predictable and um, you know there there's always that that sense of territorial um, ownership and you know i think it's just um it's just the realities of business any any business and um it's not easy to manage that but um i think this is where um you know founders who had some uh corporate experience will um, usually cope a lot quicker because they may have experienced it before right so all this is uh, the realities of the business world and um, I don't have a good answer and I don't think I will be the best person to give advice on this the uh one um i will probably just share one observation that i have seen from good leaders right in in any context so i have seen this with uh, my previous boss who was um, leading a, a huge team i have seen this as well with some of our uh, uh, founders where um, the ability to instill common goals is one that is really key to bring people together and you know i think it's it's uh, the one thing that my boss used to challenge us was to remind every time there is a you know quote unquote conflict among different people or different departments she would always ask what needed to be done to achieve the common goal that everyone have agreed on so having this one and only one uh, stated common goal where um, everyone has explicitly agree on um, definitely helps and she used to have a huge writing on her uh, on her whiteboard uh, in in her office of that common goal and kind of that that brings everyone that brings everyone to it so the most common um, conflict that i had was whether uh, in in banking and any any lending business is always the conflict between the business side of things, the business development, sales, and marketing people, and the credit and risk management people. Um, Your you side know, so of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've I've been in I've been in both sides, so it's 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 great. It's it's really great to see and. Um, you know, and that's why I saw that the best leaders 
uh, in banking usually have been on both sides because they would understand. And um, yeah, you know, so so you know, sometimes uh, I mean, I've like I said, I've been on both sides. Where um, when when I was in charge of business development, we wanted to create a program, and you know, the credit people don't like it. Vice versa, when I was in credit, um, the marketing people wanted to do a marketing program where I say, hey, this is not going to work. Um, you know, that happened a lot. And um, yeah, I think having that one stated common goal helped us look at the, you know, come back to find the middle ground. And um, yeah, I think that's just one observation that I've seen from you know some great leaders uh, that definitely a learning from me and I won't I won't say that um, you know I'm an expert in that um, and, um, you know seeing that this this happens a lot everywhere so to to this founder I would say that you're not alone um, I think the the one thing that you can definitely do is speak to other founders because I'm I'm pretty sure everyone is facing similar uh, problems and also speak to other business leaders um, that are probably in the corporate world that is very different from from your startup but um, you know people management and leadership cuts everywhere so. Hopefully that's uh, that gives new ideas for you. Best of luck to this founder. And I, now that you mention it, I realize that if you go to corporate and you're sick of this, you might go to a startup and think, you know, this might not happen again. But I realizing now that maybe you won't experience it when you're starting the startup because you're already like the yes. founder, and then you're only how many people. But then I feel like I guess as you scale to a later stage, you have more people, then you'll suddenly have the problem of yes. you know, politics in the company. It's unavoidable. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. My my theory is that once your team grow to more than 10 people, then you will you will always start having having this issue. Because when when you have a team of 10 people, it's still pretty manageable to be able mm-hmm. to talk to everyone on a daily basis, making sure that everyone is aligned. But once you have more than that, you know, as a leader, you'll have your hand full. So Yes. Um, if if you're sick of the corporate world and you know think that you won't face this in a startup, you're right. It's uh, you're 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 definitely going to face the same issues as long as the startup grows. But if you keep uh, going to early stage startups with ten people all the, for your entire career and just work there and not start it, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. 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 I think it's just a matter of personal choice. If it's a if it's a founder, mm-hmm. you'll end up facing this at some point. But if you're working at corporate, sick of it, and never want to experience again. Just uh, go to companies with less than 10 people all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Advice for two types of people now, founders and mm-hmm. people who just don't like corporate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, Dandi. Well, I have one last question for you uh, right before we end. And this is a question that we ask every single guest on the podcast. And outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? And there's no timeline for this. This could be something you achieve when you're 80. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is totally something that I don't know if I will ever be able to achieve in my lifetime. But I, 
have recently developed a fascination around neuroscience. So my personal biggest fear is um, losing my brain capacity. And um, I think it was really triggered by watching The Father. If you've seen that amazing movie where Sir Anthony Hopkins won an Oscar like three, four years ago, it was really amazing to see how Alzheimer and dementia can really change um, your life and your family and seeing some members of my family going through that. So that was my personal biggest fear right now. And, you know, knowing that um, that could happen to me really prompted me to um, start reading and listening to podcasts about neuroscience. So, you know, if there is a chance for me to go back to university and actually study neuroscience, that's something that, uh, you know, I always say that that's, that's something that's always now at the back of my mind. I never know whether I will be able to get there. I think if I don't have the financial freedom to do that, I don't think I will, I will ever be able to get there. But um, yeah, that's, that's my answer. Or hopefully you can invest in something that does that or like uh, support yes. people who have Alzheimer's. I think that does fall yes. under impact. Yep, definitely. So hopefully. And I guess yeah. if there's someone out there who's hoping to start a business like that, they now know one person to speak to, which is you. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Well, this is a really fun chat. Thank you so much, Dondi. So nice to catch up again and hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully that's that's helpful. And yeah, feel free to edit out all the um, all the uh, bad internet connection. <laughs> <laughs>